Well, my name is Jim Mullins. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, and every once in a while, Ricardo takes a little bit of break, and then you put in the B team like myself. But it's a real privilege to be able to be here and to teach. And um, one, my role here at Redemption is I over, oversee some classes, a lot of our cultural engagement. Um, and what I really love, one of my favorite things, is uh, vocational discipleship. I love pouring into people and helping them see that their work has tremendous value in the eyes of God and is an incredible way to glorify him. And so one of the ways that we wanted to emphasize our belief that all of life is truly all for Jesus is by, uh, by starting something new that we're going to be calling uh, vocation interviews. And we're going to bring someone up throughout the summer, uh, a new person each week, uh, most weeks, and then we're going to bring them up, we're going to interview them and ask them about their job, how they glorify God in it, how they love others, and then we're going to pray for them and pray for the other people in that industry. And this is a part of our way of expressing that we believe that God is the one who is sending us into all domains of society. And so we're going to start today by bringing Jessica St. John up. And um, she's a microbiologist, and she's really smart, and I don't know what a microbiologist really is. So we're going to bring her up, and we're going to talk to her. So would you welcome her as she comes up? All right, welcome, Jessica. This is round three here. So would you start off by telling us uh, what do you do on a day-to-day basis as a microbiologist? Well, I'm a clinical microbiologist, which means that I work for a hospital. And anytime you've gone to the hospital for a strep screen for your throat or a flu test or any kind of culture, uh, even a stool culture, that's the stuff that I get. So, <laughs> um, And basically that means that I look at Petri dishes and under a microscope all day and determine if you have an infection. If you do, then I let the doctor know which antibiotic to give you. So in other words, you know them better than they know themselves sometimes. Probably, yeah. Right? Okay. <laughs> uh, so what does it look like to glorify God in your day-to-day work? Um, the way that I can best glorify God is just doing my job to the best of my ability and just making sure that I'm not cutting corners or, you know, I know everybody gets exhausted with their day-to-day routine and my job is very repetitive. We see a lot of the same thing over and over again. So it can get a little draining, but just doing my job to the best of my ability and just going above and beyond every day. Yeah. And what does it look like for you to obey Jesus's command to love your neighbor as yourself through the work that you do? Well, a lot of us on the, the back end of things don't always see like the impact on patient care that we have. And that, you know, is rewarding when you get to see that, but you don't always get to see the impact you have in people's lives. So Um, just making sure that I'm doing the best job that I can and not like, not, you know, just skipping out on work early or anything like that. Cause on the other end of that patient specimen is somebody's daughter or grandfather or, you know, coworker or anything like that. So that's the best way to love my neighbor. So you're saying those who've uh, gotten the results back and have been able to take care of an illness and those sorts of things that often is because of the work that you and your colleagues do. That's great. Well, how can we pray for you and your colleagues? Uh, anybody in the scientific field knows that 
uh, there are a lot of atheists that you work with. So first and foremost, I'd be praying for them. And second, just that I can continue to glorify God in all that I do. That's great. Well, is anyone else here in the uh, just a science field or work in the medical world? I'm not going to bring you up here. You can raise your hand. We just want to get a heads up. I'm going to pray for her now, but I'm also going to pray for you because your work is quite important. So let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you extend your grace and your care to our grandparents, to our children, to us, uh, through doctors, through people in the medical world, uh, through people who are in labs uh, looking at Petri dishes. And we just thank you for the many lives that have been saved and preserved and people cared for. We see that as an extension of your love. We also see that behind every telescope and every microscope, what we see are things that you have created and that you are Lord over. We pray that you would get the glory in science and in medicine and that you uh, would strengthen and use people like Jessica and people in this room to be a blessing to many. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's thank Jessica. Thank you. All right, well, let's go ahead and let's continue in our, in our series in Romans. And uh, we're going to open up to Romans chapter 3, and starting with verse 1. And uh, if you have a Bible, you want to go there. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and one of these fine people walking down the aisle here would get, will give you one. Um, all right, let's go ahead and begin. Let me read the text we're going to go for today. Starting in verse 1, it says, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or to what value is circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Now today, before we start specifically talking about what the text says, I want us to put ourselves in the place of the hearer. The two different types of audiences that would be uh, around in Paul's day. On one hand, you have a Gentile audience. You have a non-Jewish audience. You have people who heard about this Jesus. They were living in Rome. And maybe someone that they were baking with or building tents with told them about Jesus. And it was the best news they've ever heard. But they didn't know much. And so when they saw this messenger coming down the road, and he was carrying a letter from Paul. And it was a long letter, and it, it broke down and explained the robust theology that was connected to this Jesus. It was good news. And you can imagine if they opened it up, and what they would have felt like for the first time to read that letter. You and I, we've probably read, uh, many of us have read Romans a number of times. But can you imagine... If you're one of the first people to ever look at that letter, and you were a non-Jewish person who was worshiping the God who had revealed himself primarily to the nation of Israel, and then when you open that letter up, it said that everybody, because they're under sin, and because they're sinners, they stand before God, and they don't have righteousness. But... The righteousness of Jesus is extended to all people, Jews and Gentiles alike, because of the work of Jesus. 
We were once alienated from God, but now we're reconciled to God. We were his enemies, but then we become his sons, his daughters, his children. This, this news in the book of Romans should, it, it probably moved them to tears and it should move us as well because it's beautiful truth. And that was the, the Gentile audience. But there was another audience that was reading this letter and they loved it too. And it was good news all the way through. They saw that in this letter, as Jewish people, all of Israel's history was being fulfilled in Jesus. And that he is the good news. He is the king. He's the Messiah that they were waiting for. But they might have some questions. Imagine if you had spent your entire life assuming that God chose exclusively the Jewish people. And that if you wanted to be a worshiper of God, you had to be a Jewish person. You, you participated in the festivals. You tried to, to keep the law. And imagine what you might think. You might have some questions. And these are the questions that Paul is addressing in this section. Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. In these eight verses, Paul actually brings up 11 questions. Some of them he answers. Some of them he doesn't. Some of them are more rhetorical. Some of them he actually answers in these verses. And some he answers in chapters, um, in later chapters. So let me just mention some of the questions that are brought up. I'm going to paraphrase in, in these verses. The first question is, uh, if God is glorified by saving unrighteous people, then shouldn't we all be unrighteous so that God gets the glory? In other words... If God gets glory because he saves and he rescues people who did some really messed up stuff, and that amplifies God's grace, shouldn't we all just go do some really messed up stuff? Shouldn't we just be robbing our neighbors all the time and selling cocaine and things like that? <laughs> because that makes for a really dramatic, good story, and God would get more glory. Now, Paul really gets into answering that question in Romans chapter 6, but I don't want to leave you hanging on what the answer is, you know, because it's going to be a number of weeks. The answer is no. That's, no, you should not go do those things. Um, the next question is, does Israel's unfaithfulness to God's covenant mean that God is unfaithful as well? In other words, since Israel messed up and couldn't keep the covenant, and God was the one who chose Israel, does that mean that, that God made a bad choice and somehow he's not faithful? He didn't come through? And that, that is addressed in Romans chapter uh, 9 through 11. But just, you know, spoiler alert, no. The answer is no. God is faithful even when we're unfaithful. But the question I'm going to focus on today is the question that is, first, is addressed in the, the first two verses of, of Romans uh, 3. And it's essentially this question. Uh, it's, it's to, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what value is circumcision? In other words, if God's grace extends to people from all racial backgrounds and all nations and covers even the most heinous sins, is there any spiritual value to being ethnically Jewish? 
And Paul, that's the question that he answers. And he basically answers it in two ways. First of all, his first answer is, regarding salvation, the answer is no. Your ethnicity doesn't give you any bearing before God. And this was covered in, the, in what Ryan taught on last week in Romans uh, chapter 2, 28, verse 28 through 29, where it says, For no one is a Jew who is, who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit and not by the letter. In other words, salvation comes by the grace of God and not the race of a particular people. And that those who really are God's people, the true Jews, if you will, are those who are inwardly transformed by the gospel, not who have an outward ethnic heritage. But Paul answers again. He says, there is great value to your Jewish identity because Israel, and I'm talking ancient Israel, not current political nation state Israel, was the nation that was entrusted with the oracles of God. They were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, if you're anything like me, the word oracle seems kind of weird, right? Like Jason Raber, he's a, he reads a lot of fantasy books. He's one of the pastors here. And, you know, we, we catch him every break. He's got like some book about wizards and things like that. And it's always talking about oracles and stuff. And it's oracles... You know, that language and the fantasy books, not quite my thing. He really likes it a lot. But it's not talking about anything weird like that or anything you get in the video game Zelda from the 90s. I won't be able to do that joke in the 7 o'clock service, and apparently not this service either. Zelda <laughs> uh, van right there. Um, but the oracles of God, simply what he's talking about is the word of God. That Israel, this nation, was they had nothing distinct and unique about them other than this god said that's the nation that i am going to reveal myself to and i am going to give my word to and i am going to interact with them in their history and uniquely shape this people by the word so what benefits what what's good what what would happen with israel by receiving god's word And so I'm going to name three benefits here uh, uh, that they received from having the word revealed to them. First of all, number one, is that through the word, that through God's word, God reveals himself. You see, Israel was this nation, this nation that was surrounded by all kinds of other gods who were nothing like the one true God. And everyone was, was carving little statues and, and having little woodworkers and making these idols who had no power and who had no voice. But God revealed himself to this nation of Israel. Imagine getting to know who this God is for the first time. This God that we know as the one who's sovereign over everything, the Lord over everything, the one who is Good, the definition of love, overflowing with mercy and grace. The one who acts within history, the one who speaks and reveals, the one who enters history through Jesus. 
and walked among us. The God who is so holy that we can't even come near to him. But he doesn't call us slave or employee. He calls us children. And this God revealed himself to a nation. And it was so powerful and impactful that then all the nations around looked in at Israel and were amazed by who God is. And in particular, the way that Israel responded to the word of God. If we read Deuteronomy uh, chapter 4, verse 5 through 8, we see uh, Moses talking to the people and talking about the uniqueness of the word of God and how it's a witness to the surrounding nations. It says, See, I have taught you the decrees and the laws as the Lord my God commanded me, so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of it. Observe them carefully. For this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all of these decrees and say, Surely this is a great nation. It is wise and understanding, it is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near to them the way the Lord our God is near to us whenever we pray to Him? And what other nation is so great? as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I am setting before you today. In other words, God's laws and his ways were so unique and distinct that the surrounding nations looked in and said there is something unique about the, the, the law of that community and the, the words of that community and the God that they serve. Second off, God reveals uh, through his word, his vision for all of life. The book of Leviticus, the book of Deuteronomy, these books that you skip over in your, in your reading program sometimes, right? You know which ones I'm talking about, the ones that talk about moss and all these uh, regulations and rules. These actually showed a God who didn't just care about the worship service and, and a few acts on a particular day, but this was a God who has a comprehensive vision for all of life, who cares about family and justice and health and economics and work and rest and every aspect of human flourishing and every aspect of human life. And, 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 they, and there was a God who who cared about all of these things and wanted them to be done for his glory and in obedience. And God who had this big vision for all of life. And also, you can imagine, it was the, when you read the prophets, we saw a God who had a vision for a future restoration that was comprehensive. That covered everything. You can imagine what it would have been like for Israel to be carried out in exile. To imagine being in your home and all of a sudden someone knocks on your door. And then you open it up. And there are people with weapons. And you look outside and your whole village has been taken out. It's been absolutely pillaged. People you know you see dying. You hear babies crying and they're being left behind. These people are pulling you out of your house. They're taking your nation captive and they're moving you on to a different place. The, the, the farm that you cultivated will be taken over by somebody else. The home that you built will be uh, inhabited by someone else. 
And then the prophets would come along and they would point to the future, this vision of restoration and hope when God would make all things new and all things right. And we, I'll give you one example of this in Isaiah 65. You can go there, verse 17 through 23. We're going to look at those passages for a moment. And it's sort of God's vision for his future city, the future restored new heavens and new earth. In verse 17, it says, For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. If that sounds familiar, that's what's repeated at the end of Revelation. And so he's speaking to Israel and giving them this future vision of restoration. And he talks about what the emotional state of the people will be like in that day. That it will be emotions of joy and gladness and celebration. In verse 18, it says, But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. So in, the, in that future day, it will be marked by joy and gladness. It will be marked by no more tears and no more brokenness. And death will be absent. In verse 20, it says, No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days. Or an old man who does not fill out his days. You can imagine as you're on your journey being taken into captivity. That there's a woman who has a miscarriage because of the sheer exhaustion of what happens. You can imagine an old man who just can't make it in the journey. And, and, he, and he falls apart and he dies. And, and you hear in the prophets, you read in the prophets that that there will be a day where there will be no more death and that type of injustice will be done away with. Imagine how much hope that would infuse to them. And also imagine what they would be, uh, what they would be feeling as they heard the prophet's vision for productive work and sufficient housing and, and, and flourishing. In verse 21 it says, They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall be the days of my pe- shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. In other words, there will be a day. He's saying to the suffering people, where there won't be someone who comes and knocks on your door, and takes you from your home. But you will work with your hands, you will flourish, and you will dwell, and you will have joy, and things will be made right. And it was this vision from the prophets, this vision from the word of God, that infused them with hope, even in the most messed up, challenging, and painful trials. And finally, the the benefit that, the, the last benefit that they have from receiving the word of God, the third benefit, is that it gave them a preview of the coming of Christ. All of the Old Testament is hinting at the coming of this one, this Messiah, the Savior who would come. And by being a Jewish person, you would understand certain aspects of the imagery that surrounded the life of Christ. And you would, and you would understand what actual good news it was and still is. If you had seen a sacrifice... 
If you had seen a lamb on maybe the Day of Atonement and, and, the, and, the, and you see the blood pouring out of its neck and how nasty and how gruesome it is and how horrible of a sight it is, you would understand a little bit of what uh, John the Baptist was getting at in John one twenty nine when he looked at Jesus and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. They had the word which gave them a glimpse at the coming of Christ. And furthermore, if you lived through and you read the history of the various kingdoms and the insufficient kings that Israel had, Solomon and David being some of the best of them, but they even failed. But in Israel, they were looking for a new king who would come, who would be a perfect king, who would set up a reign that, that would never fail, a reign where things were right, and there would be a unique king with a character that's unfailing. And when they saw Jesus and they heard him say, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel, they would have a little bit of an understanding of what Jesus was getting at. That the kingdom of God had broken into history through Jesus and that now was the time of good news. That redemption and salvation and the hope of the kingdom was, was caught up and bound into this person of Jesus. And that is why there is spiritual advantage. That is why it would be good in that day to have a Jewish identity because you would understand the word of God, and have a whole history of it. That you are part of the people that were entrusted with the word of God. Now, what does this have to do with us? I imagine that most people in here would say, listen, uh, that sounds nice, but I'm not, a, I'm not Jewish. I don't have a Jewish background. So I'm not really asking that question. Well, first and foremost, I think we can all be instructed by the fact of how the, the word shaped that nation. And we can all be shaped by the word of God. But I want to make a comparison here. I want to compare the nation of Israel with Christian families. You see, the nation of Israel was not saved and is not saved by their ethnic identity or being a part of that nation. And in the same way, those of us who grow up in Christian homes and with parents who are believers, who really love God, we're not saved by being a part of that family. However, just as there is great benefit to the Jewish people because they had the word of God, there is great benefit to those of us who have grown up in Christian homes where parents, with parents who really love God because the word of God is taught there. And it embeds itself deep into our hearts. You see, a lot of times, because we're celebrating the grace of God and, and how he, he, he can cover any sin, even the most horrific of sins, and he can receive the person who seems the most distant. We celebrate those things all the time, but when we celebrate them, sometimes we can downplay the tremendous amount of grace that God pours out onto some people who grow up in these homes. And we need to learn to celebrate again what God does through, uh, through a home where God is, the, is glorified and the word of God is taught. And I know some people who actually, they, they have a, they, 
they don't have a big dramatic story of how they came to, to know Jesus. And it's almost as if you want to go do some bad stuff or you wish you would have done some bad stuff in the past, like go on a shooting spree or something like that, just so you'd have a better story to tell. And that is not the way to think about it. Um, you've thought about that before, huh? No, I'm <laughs> just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, so let me, I want to tell you kind of my story and my wife's story. And I want to, to, to contrast them and just say that these are both different ways that God redeems people. Now, my story is I did not grow up in a home where the word of God was taught, where we heard about Jesus, where we heard the gospel. Pretty much the only time I heard the name of Jesus was when someone was pretty angry about something. So you can understand where I'm going with that. Um, and I, in this home, there were a lot of divorces as I was growing up. I kind of bounced between different people. And I was an angry kid, and I was an insecure kid. And I was just ticked off everywhere I went. I was frustrated with my situation in life. I didn't trust a lot of people. And let me tell you, there, is, there's, there are few things worse in a junior hire than an angry and an insecure uh, junior hire. But I'll tell you something that's much worse. A junior hire who's angry insecure and bigger than everybody else. And that's who who I was. And I took this anger out on people and on on stuff, on things. I got into a lot of fights. Uh, I started fights with people. I even like, as a 14 year old, tried to start fights with 25 year olds and got beat up most of the time. But I was just wanting to fight. And I would also vandalize stuff. I'd break into homes, I'd steal things. And, and I, I was just an angry kid who was rebelling against God and re- rebelling against everything I knew. Then I found football. And football is a place where grown-ups get really excited about you doing violent things. And they encourage you to do it and things like that. So I loved football. Football became my idol. It was what my life was about. And growing up, people would have probably said that I was a pretty good football player. But the reality is, I wasn't that good of a football player. I was just good at hitting people. And I really liked doing that. And I was an arrogant kid who got into scuffles and hit people a lot. But guess what? One day, God hit me. God hit me and injured me and saved me. I had ditched school one day, and I was wrestling with a friend in the living room. We, had, we, we were probably a little bit inebriated. And I lifted this friend up on my shoulder. And for some reason, another friend decided it would be a good idea to dive at my legs. So in this living room, I fall, and the weight of my friend and my weight comes down on my elbow. And snap, crackle, pop, th- this elbow is done. It, it was the most painful thing I had ever been through in my life. And my, uh, my friend took me to the hospital. They looked at it. They gave a whole list of things that were wrong with it. There were fractures, and this thing was torn, and that thing was torn. It was in bad shape. And my family, we, my mom, who I love, she's great. Uh, she, she worked really hard, but we didn't have insurance. And so I couldn't get an operation pretty much football was going to be done for me. So I was in the market for a new idol, a new thing to build my life around. So I decided that I was going to be the hedonistic guy. I was just going to go party. 
I was going to go do crazy stuff. And I was just going to try to have as much fun as I possibly could. And then one day I would die. And I wasn't in any way kneeling before the throne of Jesus. But I was finding myself each morning kneeling before a porcelain throne in somebody's bathroom. And I realized that this is not where life is. This is not the good life here. So I decided I'm going to become a good guy, a good person. So I re-enrolled in school. I had dropped out before. And I went to a charter school. Now, it's not the type of charter school that you're probably thinking of because charter schools are popping up left and right and they're, they're really good charter schools where everybody gets a laptop and stuff. This was charter school for bad kids where there were partitions. Everybody got a partition to keep them away from different gangs and those sorts of things. And so, but I was at this school to be the good kid and I started getting good grades and I started a student council and I appointed myself the president of student council. <laughs> that's, that's the easy way to become the president uh, And uh, we were doing these good things. We were doing community service. But something was awry in me. And in that time, I wouldn't have explained it as sin or alienation from God. But really, that's what I was experiencing. That as good as I was trying to be, I, I was still messed up. And I was still distant from that which I was supposed to be connected to and united to. Namely, the God who created me. And so one day, sitting in front of AOL Instant Messenger, um, (laughs) I can tell everyone who's like over the age of 18 by who laughed at that. So Um, I'm typing on AOL, and I had a friend who had become a a believer. And she was sharing the gospel with me over IM. And she was typing scriptures and copying them in there. And I had heard the gospel a number of times, but that is when God decided to turn the lights on for me. And what she was saying is what I wanted. And the Jesus she was talking about, that was going to be my Lord, and that is the one I needed to save me. And so sitting in front of a computer screen, I became a child of God and a follower of Jesus. And and it it was amazing. It was rich. I wish there... So many things happened after that. Like, for instance, my family moved away pretty soon after that. And I had to to get a job at the age of 17 and uh, live on my own. So I dropped out of school again and I became a uh, uh, a professional car hop at Sonic. And there's nothing more terrifying than a really big guy who's uncoordinated on skates. Um, But they kept me around. And it was a hard time, and I, I have a bunch of stories. I won't tell them now because I need some material for future sermons and whatnot. But um, let me just say this. I didn't know much, but every day I would come home and I would read the Word of God. And it began to shape me and change me and transform me. And, and it was the Word that shaped me. Now, my wife, Jenny, let me tell you her story. Let me tell tell it to you how she would tell it to you. She would say that she grew up in a home with parents who loved Jesus. She went to a Christian school. Her parents taught her the Bible. When she did something wrong, her parents told her about it. When she did something that was good, her parents told her about it. She knew that her parents loved her no matter what. She knew that Jesus loved her no matter what. She couldn't tell you when she became a Christian... 
She just knows that she's believed in him as long as she can remember, and she still believes in him and loves him to this day. Now that story, in my opinion, is one of the most beautiful stories that you could ever hear. And I would say, maybe even a better, more dramatic story than the one that I I told you about. Maybe not as dramatic, but definitely rich and, and, and good and maybe even better. Because we need to look at these stories anew. We need to look at them and see that these are stories where God is pouring out his grace day in and day out. If, if you ever do a Google search uh, or a YouTube search, here's what you should type in. You should type in deaf person hears for the first time. And what you'll see, you'll be moved to tears. They have this new technology that kind of looks like this funky uh, mic that I have on my head now that allows people to hear who have never heard before. And as soon as they're able to hear the voice of their loved ones, uh, their own voice, the voice of their children for the first time, they, they cry, they break down into tears because hearing things, even things like a car going across the street or the music on a commercial is beautiful and hearing is a gift. But you know what's a better story, a better gift? Being able to hear day in, day out, all your life. What a gift. We just don't know how to appreciate it. And so God lavished my wife with blessing after blessing and gift after gift. And oftentimes we think when we become believers, that's when our story, our 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 testimony, our little story ends. But really, that's when it takes a new beginning. And and where my wife's story shows its true beauty is the character that she displays day in, day out, because the word of God is hidden in her heart. When she has lived this life where she has trusted and come to know Jesus, and it, it becomes especially powerful in the times when there is trouble and pain and challenge. You see, about nine months ago, uh, my wife and I, we knew that there were some developmental challenges that were going on, that was going on with my daughter. And we finally got a diagnosis that my daughter has high functioning autism. And it was very hard for us. And it was amazing to see the way that my wife, Jenny, has responded. But, uh, one aspect of this that's been particularly hard is sleep. Because our kid likes to party in the middle of the night. And she likes to wake up sometimes between 1 and like 4 in the morning and just hang out, play with toys. She just does not want to sleep. And this concerns me because my wife loves Jesus, her family, and then like sleep pretty much. That's how you would rank them. She comes from a family that I would say is a tribe of sleepers. At any time of the day, at any time of the day, someone with the last name of Get and her family is either sleeping, going, about to go to bed, or just woke up from a nap or something like that. They are a family of sleepers, and they love it. And when our, we first took our daughter home from the hospital, I was a little worried that, that my daughter wouldn't get fed because my wife might not wake up one night because she likes sleep so much. But that never happened. She, my, daughter, my wife woke up and she fed my daughter. 
And, and a lot of times you see people with newborns, they have the glazed look over their eyes because they don't get a lot of sleep. Well, listen, my daughter never stopped waking up. Almost every single day of the week, with a few rare exceptions, she wakes up in the middle of the night and interrupts our sleep and her sleep. Sometimes it takes hours to get her down. Sometimes she's crying and she's frustrated. Sometimes some, some of her, um, like a tag will bug her or, or something, she'll have something in her mind from the day and she just can't sleep. So my wife is up awake for hours at a time in the middle of the night. And I look over in the bed and I know that that empty place where my wife should be is, is uh, evidence of the grace of God. Because almost every night, she follows Jesus down the hallway into my daughter's bedroom and cares for her and takes and loves on her and sacrifices her sleep for the good of this little girl. Now, if my wife, Jenny, had been shaped by the prevalent message of our day that it's all about you, follow your dreams, it's all about this perfect little thing, uh, it's, it's all about your own life, then she, would, she wouldn't be doing that. And she wouldn't be doing it with so much love in her heart. But she wasn't shaped that way. She heard day in, day out. She heard from her parents the good news of Jesus, the one who, whose love compelled him to pour himself out on the cross for us. The self-giving, sacrificial love of Christ is demonstrated every night in our house uh, through my wife who takes care of that little kid. And that's, and that's what it means to be shaped by the word of God. And so I want to encourage us to be a community where in this culture, the word of God is lifted up and it shapes us. If you are a parent, then, then learn how to teach your kid, whether it be through songs or a children's storybook Bible, uh, teach them the word and shape them in that way. If, if you are, if you're, if you're, um, if you grew up in a home like that, thank your parents. If you didn't grow, grow up in a home like that, now's the time to be shaped by the word. Listen to the word as you drive on the road. If you have nothing to do, pick up your Bible and read it. Even with a couple of friends, read it aloud. If, especially those who, who are younger in here, who, who, are, um, who are single. It's very popular with, with your generation to be cynical and sarcastic and to not be sincere and move into it and move deeper into things and feel the freedom to have deep conversations with, uh, about the word. Second Timothy 2.16 says, all of scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And as we want to be trained in righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, let's open up the word. As people who have to make constant decisions all the time, let's let the word of God be the light on our path. As Psalm 119.105 says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And finally, let's know this, that when we open up the Bible, we're not opening it up to acquire knowledge that we can beat somebody in a game of Bible bingo. We're not opening it up so that we can become 
get a reputation of theological geniuses. We're not even opening up so that we could be better people. We are opening it up so that we could see Jesus. Because from Genesis to Revelation, the entire thing points to him. And as Jesus was walking on the road to Emmaus after he was resurrected, he was teaching people about the word of God. And it said this, it said, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And Jesus showed that he is the center and that he is the one who is found in the book. So when we open it up, be on the lookout for this great king, this great God who is worth loving with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the great God who ultimately loved you first. Let's pray.